The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So for the last few weeks, we've been exploring the teaching of delusion, and in particular in the last few weeks exploring one aspect of that, which is how we take what is not self to be self. Today I'd like to explore this teaching of not self from a particular um, text from a particular teaching from the Buddha. So there's a little bit of a story with this teaching and then a very concise instruction that the Buddha offers this particular uh, person who's come to him. The, the sutta that I'd like to talk about is called the Bahia Sutta. And um, Bahia was a renunciate at the time of the Buddha he wasn't a follower of the Buddha. He, there were many different sects of people, who, you know, different groups that um, trained in various trainings of the mind. And Bahia trained, it seems, pretty much in practices of concentration. And he was kind of a lone practitioner. He, it, it, it seems, at least from the description of, of the story, he was called Bahia of the Bark Cloth, and he basically created uh, a robe out of bark <laughs> to wear that. So he was, he was kind of a solitary renunciate. And, um, you know, he was just practicing on his own. Um, and uh, at one point he had the thought or the idea of, I wonder how enlightened I am. And it said what, what came to him in that moment was uh, a... Um, a um, an image or a vision of one of his um, ancestors who had uh, died. And this ancestor spoke to him and, and said, you know, no, you're not enlightened. In fact, you're not even on the path to enlightenment. The way you're practicing isn't onward leading in that way. And, and so Bahia, you know, having this kind of... Um, image in his mind, uh, talked to the image and said, well, is there, is there anybody, you know, how might I be on the path? And this, uh, this ancestor, it said in the story, said to him, well, there's this person, the Buddha, who lives north of here, so, you know, maybe you could go find him and, uh, and learn what he has to teach. And so Bahia undertook the journey to go find the Buddha. And it traveled by foot, took him some time. And um, he arrived at the place where the Buddha was, and he was so uh, delighted. He he went to the the place where the monks and the Buddha had been staying that morning, and he went there, and the, the Buddha was out. He was out on alms round, and some of the monks were sitting practicing, and, and he said, where's the Buddha? Where can I find the Buddha? And they said, well, you know, he's out for alms rounds, but, you know, maybe you just wait till he comes back. But Bahia was so anxious to meet the Buddha that he searched out the Buddha on his alms round. And uh, he went to the Buddha and said, let's see if I'll read this part to you. 
seeing him, he approached the Blessed One and on reaching him, threw himself down with his head at the Blessed One's feet and said, teach me the Dhamma. That will be for my long-term welfare and happiness. And the Buddha basically said to him, this is not the time I'm getting ready to go on alms round. But Bahia asked a second time. And again, the Buddha said, you know, Bahia, I'm getting ready to have my lunch. I need to get my lunch before noon. (laughs) Kind of that. This is not the time. But Bahia asked a third time. And in the suttas, asking the Buddha, you know, three times is the charm. (laughs) In almost all the stories, not everyone, there are a few notable exceptions, but in almost all the stories, if you ask the Buddha for something three times, he complied. He, he, so he stopped. He said, okay, I will offer you um, the teaching. And he offered him a very brief teaching. I'll read to you what he said. And keep in mind, I mean, there's a couple pieces about this. One is that um, Bahia had quite a strong practice of concentration. So he, he had trained his mind towards staying in the present moment, towards being present. But, but like in the guided meditation I talked about this morning, you know, when we uh, allowed the attention to settle with something like the breath, I, su- I suggested, you know, that it not be kind of a, a narrow focus or an exclusive focus, but that it, we allow that to illuminate kind of the broader experience we're having. And so, you know, Bahia was probably very skilled at the very precise, one-pointed kind of concentration, but not so much at this exploration of the broadness of our human experience. This is, this is kind of my understanding. It's not in the, in the text what his practice was. Um, but in any case, Bahia was a very um, uh, skilled practitioner with the, the practice that he had cultivated. Um, And um, as he heard this teaching, he woke up. It said that he he became fully awakened in hearing this teaching. So this is a, a very powerful teaching, if we can take it in, hear it, and practice with it. And right now I'm just going to read you half of the teaching. So the Buddha says, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. So he's offering him a practice, a training. In reference to the scene, here's the training. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. So this is a training in opening to what's happening in our, in our direct experience in the present moment. This teaching in the seen is only the seen, in the heard is only the heard, in the sensed is only the sensed, and the cognized is only the cognized. The only place we see, hear, sense, and cognize is in the present moment. And so this this teaching to me is pointing to, um, we could say it's pointing to a direction 
where this would lead us to is a, a kind of attention in the present moment that is non-reactive because it's, it's not notice what you're seeing and then think about it and figure out what to do about it or notice what you're seeing and get upset about it. It's in the scene is only the scene. Essentially, when there's seeing happening, know that seeing is happening. Another way to frame this might be uh, the, the language that um, is sometimes used is bare attention. That it's a, a kind of attention that just meets what's happening in the present moment and doesn't add anything to that. So this, this to me brings in flavors of non-reactivity, of not proliferating in thought around what's happening, of not trying to hold on to or push away what's happening, but just recognizing, oh, this is what's seen in this moment. This is what's heard in this moment. This is the experience of seeing. This is the experience of hearing. This is the experience of sensing. And the, the um, notes on this say sensing refers to the other three physical senses, so body contact, smell, and taste. So in the sensing is only the sensing. And then in the cognized is only the cognized. So this is the realm of our mental life. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. And so... One way to explore this training, because what what we tend to do is not to simply meet experience and the scene is only the scene. Instead, we do react. And so one of the ways to explore this teaching practically would be to begin to look at, well, what am I adding to seeing? What am I adding to hearing? And, and begin to explore that. And so this brings in the cognized piece, in a way, because where we add is in the realm of our minds. We add so many different kinds of things to what's happening. So when we're seeing or hearing or sensing, we, we often add a liking or not liking you know, there's some, something pleasant, we tend to like it. Something unpleasant, we tend to not like it. And the liking, the not liking is a kind of an adding. The, the, the wanting, the, 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 the movement towards some kind of reactivity about that. I like it, I have to have it. The, the neediness around that. I don't like it, I got to get rid of it. The anger, the aversion, the frustration, the fear, the confusion around that. All of that is added. Now, in our... In our um, usual way of meeting the world, that adding happens so fast that it doesn't seem like it's optional or it doesn't seem like it would even be possible to just see that thing or hear that thing and not react. It seems like it, it's just like it's so closely connected. And this is part of, uh, part of the reason this happens is because um, you know, we, we have a lot of conditioning. We, we, in our culture, in our families, in our upbringing, 
um, in being human and meeting the world, um, we have repeated experiences over and over. And we're told certain things over and over. For instance, most of us have a, an, an experience of, of sense of delight or appreciation or um, a sense of beauty that comes when we see a flower and perhaps a sense of revulsion, a sense of, of um, disgust when we see a bug, a spider, <laughs> something, you know, so, so, that, so that, that this is, it feels like it's just natural that, that, that of course you would have this. And yet this is learned. This is conditioned, this, this connection. But it's been conditioned so much that it feels automatic. You know, it feels, it feels like it just happens. This is a useful kind of thing that our minds do, this kind of connecting of, of experience or concept to, um, to some, some uh, experience or some sense experience. Because, you know, so for instance, um, you know, in this, in this country, uh, snakes, for instance, there's quite, a, there's quite a few poisonous snakes out there on land. And so we've learned to have fear around snakes. And that um, emotion of fear, if there's a slithering movement, whew, the fear will come very quickly. And it's useful. It's useful that that happens so that we stop and um, don't approach that, that snake. So, you know, this kind of connection of concept and um, emotion to sense experience can be very useful. Now, we might think that that's just an automatic thing. And yet, um, I was in the Peace Corps in a country in the South Pacific, and... Um, there are no poisonous snakes on the land. There are poisonous snakes that live in the ocean. And so uh, people going into the ocean are fearful of snakes in the ocean, but not so fearful on the land. It's, there's not that, that danger. And so that kind of conditioning of slithering snakes when you're on the land wasn't as strong in, in that country. So the... Um, these things are conditioned. This is just an example of how something we think might just be inherent in being human is conditioned. It's extra. It's added. And yet recognizing that it is useful. You know, what we learn, it's useful. It's not that we're trying to ignore or avoid what we learn. And yet what happens to us is often the way we add things, the way we add reactivity, the way we add concepts, views, ideas, there's so many different ways that we add to experience. That tends to be the place where we get uh, caught. And often the adding, much of the time, the adding that we do is... Um, is based more in views, beliefs, ideas, agendas, than it is in something actual, or is, in something, or is based in something true. And we, uh, we re- we're reacting based on ideas rather than on what's actually happening.
And so it's, it's really interesting to begin to look at what are we adding? What are we adding? If there is some kind of emotional response, that is an adding. And so useful to recognize that. And so this is partly where the in, in the cognized is only the cognized comes in to begin to also be curious about not only, oh, there's seeing happening, but also, oh, there's, there's confusion happening. You know, so if, we, well, if what we notice is that there is an emotional response to something, that emotional response has already happened. It's already arising. There's no way to like go back and undo it. And so in that moment, the best thing that we can do is explore the part of this teaching in the cognized is only the cognized. Can I know this is fear? This is anger? This is confusion? This is the human experience of wanting. Can we recognize that is something that is happening in the present moment? This will, this will serve a number of purposes. I mean, first of all, it begins, it begins to help us recognize that these things are constructed, they are conditioned, and they're not automatic or inherent. I mean, there's so many, so, uh, so many ways that we, we start to see, as we start to look into our own minds, we see that there's so many reactions that are kind of below the surface of our conscious awareness. And as we begin to see those, sometimes we begin to see, wow, I don't even believe that anymore. You know, that, I can see that came from so long ago, you know, based on what happened when I was a child or, you know, a distrust of, of, of um, people or something, you know, just something, some way in which in which we um, learned something as a child that was relevant and useful for that time but is no longer so relevant. And so we begin to see into some of those patterns and see how much suffering is created both internally, both for ourselves and maybe for others, around some of these patterns. And we can begin to, to feel like, wow, you know, I don't even believe that anymore. You know, how come I can't stop it? Why, why can't I fix that? Why can't I get rid of that? Partly, it's because it's so conditioned. And so the, the, the beginning to recognize what's happening below the surface, first of all, is, is really important. Because when we aren't recognizing it, it's just going to keep happening. You know, those, those, th- that, that will just kind of keep um, encouraging or guiding our behavior kind of under the radar, our choices that we make. And we're not even aware of it. If we can become aware of certain ideas and agendas like this, then we might have the possibility to begin to choose, do we act on them? To begin to choose, do we follow through on those uh, impulses? You know, seeing, perhaps, I don't believe that. Maybe we don't have to follow through on that belief. And yet the feelings may still come up. The feelings may still arise. And so in that, as it's become conscious, to not feel like simply making it conscious, I should be able to somehow like flip a switch and say, oh, don't do that anymore. That's, it's, it's often these things are so deeply conditioned that 
that they will keep happening. And this is where the instructions in the cognized is only the cognized actually helps us. Because we begin to see, so, you know, the, the, the situation arises. Maybe, maybe um, there's somebody who has been mean to us in, in our past. Somebody with a particular body shape. You know, we associate uh, that, that kind of um, reaction to that person. When we see somebody who looks kind of similar, with a similar kind of body shape. We might not know the person at all, but just seeing that person with that body shape, it evokes some of the fear or the, the anger or the, the hostility that came up because that person hadn't treated you so well in the past, that, that actually there was a, a, a reason for that reaction with that person in the past. And yet now, not so much. And yet... It may be, this is the kind of thing that might be below the, su- the subconscious level. You might r- not recognize that the reason you don't like that person, you know, you, you're just meeting this person for the first time and there's a sense of, hmm, I don't like that person. You may not have any clue that it's connected to this underlying uh, pattern. And yet as we start to pay attention, as we start to be curious about what's happening, it may start to be revealed. It's like some of those habits, those patterns, those conditionings. As we pay attention to what's happening in our present moment experience, some of those kind of begin to be surfaced. And so we may begin to recognize, oh, there's a connection here. I see that there's a relationship to that, a memory of that person. You might even just see a flash of a memory of that person who hadn't treated you well as you see that person and recognize, oh, it's not actually this person. It's history. It's, it's baggage that's coming into play here. And so seeing that, you may not be able to, to, to just say, oh, I'm going to start liking this person, but at least you may be able to moderate the feeling of dislike and, and suspend a little bit of that feeling and see, well, what, how is this person? And so this is beginning to recognize in the cognized is the cognized. So there's this feeling arising right now. Seeing is happening. The feeling of fear. And knowing that. Oh, this is, this is fear. Can I, can I know that? And not necessarily or not, and not have the sense of needing to believe that fear or act on that fear. Because we've seen something about that fear being constructed in this moment that it's not necessarily related to this person in particular, that there's baggage coming in. And so this is a way to explore. In the seen is only the seen, in the heard is only the heard, in the sensed is only the sensed, in the cognized is only the cognized. Be curious about what's being added. Beliefs, views, are also a huge source of adding. Uh, ideas that we have about a situation, ideas, opinions uh, that we have. Um, We have um, views, beliefs, and I talked about views and beliefs a few weeks ago, so I'll just really briefly touch into this piece right now. Um, uh, we, We have views that are kind of built based or constructed based on our own familial conditioning, our personal conditioning, what happened to us as kids, you know, so there's, there's kind of a personal 
um, conditioning that results in views. I'm the kind of person who is like this. I'm the kind of person who people react to in this way. You know, so, so we have these ideas, beliefs about who we are, what we can do, what we're capable of, based on our conditioning. We have views that are created um, by our culture, by our society. Views about who's safe, who's not safe. Views about, um, uh, you know, kind of cultural norms of, of how close you stand to people when you talk to them or how much eye contact you make or, or how much uh, physical contact you make with somebody you know or... Um, you know, again, in my in my um, in the culture where I was in in the Peace Corps, um, there was a um, um, when people when when two adults held hands. You know, what what do, what do we think that means when two adults hold hands? And in in that culture, it meant they were friends. Two adults of you know that that that, that there was just a, that was, that was what that was what it meant it didn't have anything any it didn't necessarily mean anything more than that um so there's you know so many cultural uh ways that we're conditioned that we think um you know it's be, and because we are swimming in our culture often these are views that are not revealed and so when i um you know, when I uh, was in this other culture and I saw adults holding hands, I began to realize that I had this view that it meant there was a particular relationship there. And it was, that was not the case in this culture, in, in the culture where I was. And so that, that, you know, began to make me recognize, wow, I had this view that that was just the way human beings were. And it's not the case. So there's lots and lots of views like this. And this, a lot of suffering actually comes around these kinds of views because we tend to, cultural views um, tend to be oriented around creating a sense of us and who we belong to and who we are like and who we are not like. And so there, there begins to be this creation of us and them in our cultural views. And the, that kind of... Um, separation and dichotomy or, or a sense of other is a big place where suffering happens. This kind of view is where so much prejudice, oppression is born out of. Racism, sexism, ageism, ableism, homophobia. So many of these fears and uh, views about um, self, other, in, out, belonging, not belonging, create so much suffering in our world. So these views, and, and as we begin to explore these views, we begin to see they are views. And this is a powerful, powerful tool, not only to uncover suffering that happens in our own hearts and minds, but also suffering that is happening in our world. The possibility of uh, transforming our own hearts and minds in this way, I do believe will have a ripple effect in our culture. 
And so beginning to be aware of these as added, as extra. And again, we're probably not going to be able to recognizing them. I mean, part of the, 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 the danger or the a concern with beliefs, a big piece of it is that they are not seen, that we are not aware that they are happening. And so the first part of our practice is begin to recognize what are our beliefs. And we can do this in a simple way. You know, actually one really powerful tool for us around views and beliefs, when we are suffering or when we see suffering happening in an interaction that we are in, for instance, like it may, it may be that we are, um, you know, engaged in something and we see somebody respond to us in a particular way and it's like, wow, that's confusing, you know, so I, I don't understand what that reaction is. Or if we're, if we're reacting and we see some kind of reaction in ourselves, be curious about what is being believed right now. You can drop that question in to your mind. What am I believing? What is being believed right now? What's being believed if there's suffering in here? You know, anytime there's suffering in our experience, there is some form of belief that's happening. So curiosity about that, particularly when we're struggling. And sometimes in, in uh, an interchange with somebody, if there's, if there's suffering happening over there, and especially if you're reacting to that suffering, again, you know, what am I believing? Or maybe opening to uh, kind of the curiosity about, well, I wonder what that person is believing right now. You know, what's, what's going on in their understanding? Do they have a different perspective on this situation? so that we begin to broaden our understanding that different views about a situation are possible. So beginning to be curious about that, beginning to be curious about our views. So these are ways that we add to experience. These are ways adding happens. Reactivity, emotional response to what's happening views, opinions, beliefs. These things are added. And yet again, these things are in the terrain. When we recognize them, when we begin to, through the practice of mindfulness, start to see some of the views, the beliefs, the reactivity happening, that awareness makes it possible to then engage with that as, oh, in the cognized is only the cognized. Can I know this belief as a belief? probably we're not going to also be able to say, oh, I should stop believing that. We might try to say that. We might try to to think that we could do that, especially if there's a way in which we don't consciously believe it anymore. You know, it's like we see, wow, I don't even believe that anymore. And yet some part of us, like deeper underneath our system, deeper in our uh, minds, is a way in which that belief is still operating, even if it's not consciously believed. And so we have to be willing to be curious about that. Believing is happening right now. When we notice that, what's being believed, it can be interesting to check in to the level of belief. So, wow, 
yeah, I see that's being believed, but consciously I don't believe that right now. Or I'm seeing that's a belief, and yeah, wow, yeah, that, I think that's true. So noticing kind of the, on the, 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 the belief-o-meter, you know, <laughs> how, how strong is the belief? So we can begin to be curious about that. Is okay, this is something happening. In the cognized, is, is the cognized. Believing is happening right now. And what, what, how, what is the strength of that belief? Over time, as, they get, as beliefs get exposed, as reactivity gets exposed, this p- form of practice, what the Buddha is recommending for Bahia, in the seen is only the seen, in the heard is only the heard, in the sensed is only the sensed, in the cognized is only the cognized, this form of practice has a transformative power. Because as we explore that, as we open to experience in that way, one of the things that happens is that we begin to recognize certain kinds of uh, reactions as being painful, certain kinds of adding as being painful, here and now. And so, you know, a, a reaction of, of anger to somebody who is doing something or saying something you know, again, recognizing that very quick, perhaps, for that to come up, but it is extra. And if we can be curious, okay, in the anger is only the anger. What is the experience of anger? What is it? And we begin to recognize through that curiosity that anger hurts. Reactivity in our mind hurts here and now. And this is actually something that we may not have consciously noticed. It seems obvious, especially when we just start to pay attention, how painful something like anger is, how painful confusion and anxiety and fear and uh, depression, how painful they are here and now. And yet often, because we're caught in the story of the anger, because we're not simply recognizing, oh, in the anger, this is the experience of anger. We're kind of caught by the beliefs and views and ideas around that anger. Well, I really need to make sure that person understands this and knows that, and I'm going to get back at that person, and they're really going to be miserable. You know, we're caught in that, and we're actually missing here and now that this hurts. This experience hurts here and now. It hurts me. Around anger in particular, there's a teaching that, the, that is offered in, the, in the, um, uh, the Buddhist texts that anger is kind of like picking up a hot coal to throw at somebody. You know, we want, in some ways, our anger wants to hurt somebody else. And yet, in picking up that hot coal to throw at somebody, we are missing. You know, we're burning ourselves first, and yet we're missing that. And so through the practice of being curious about reactivity, what's added in the present moment, we start to see what what is not helpful. This is a different perspective on our experience. And as, as our system, kind of like there's this 
system, our system, our human system actually has a kind of very natural organic mechanism that we can be very grateful for, which basically wants to take us in the direction of well-being. It wants to take us towards um, ease and peace and happiness. And yet because we have been not meeting and getting full information, we've been kind of buying into our beliefs, our views, our stories, we're missing some, some of the information that can allow our system, our organism, to guide us in the direction of happiness, a deeper kind of happiness. Because we're missing that, we're, we're, we're kind of guiding ourselves actually in the, exactly the opposite direction, towards continuing being caught by all of this extra stuff. And as we begin to see it with mindfulness and kind of touch into the experience of reactivity, our system, which wants to take us towards well-being, begins to understand how to let those go. That letting go, you know, when I I talked about we're not going to be able to simply choose to stop having those ideas, choose to stop having those reactions. And yet the mindfulness being meeting experience begins to kind of, it's kind of like from underneath it begins to redirect and move and transform the experience and take us in a different direction. And so this practice in the cognized is only the cognized very powerful. In the seen is only the seen, in the heard is only the heard, in the sensed is only the sensed. It's kind of a pointer to how often we are not simply meeting experience as experience. So I want to save a little bit of time, so I'm going to stop the adding piece right there. I had a couple more ways to talk about that, but, but I'm going to continue with the rest of the the sutta. So, this is what he said to be here. Tra- you should train yourself thus. And then he goes on. He says, When for you there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then Bahia. There is no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. And so essentially here he's pointing to the understanding of not-self pointing to the understanding that essentially the sense of self is an addition. It's actually a concept that's added to experience. That Essentially, you know, we, we take in experience, we receive experience, there's a processes that happen, all of this conditioning uh, leads us to respond in certain ways. And, and then kind of what happens, and you can see this if you begin to be curious about it, begin to be curious about the sense of self itself. And that's a lot of what I talked about in the last few weeks. How do we get curious about a sense of self? 
um, if, we, if we start to get curious about that, we start to see that the sense of self is kind of happens after the fact. It's like a reaction happens or something happens in our system. There's, a, there's a, someone who says something and um, the conditioning, the response and what's happening in the present moment all comes in to create a particular reaction. And then we think, I did that. I got angry. I made that happen. And so the sense of self is, ac- is, is a concept. It's an after the fact. But here in this teaching, the Buddha isn't coming at this teaching of not self directly. He, he's basically saying, practice in this way. Practice in the seen is only the seen and the heard is only the heard and the sensed is only the sensed and the cognized is only the cognized. And I think the subtext of that is notice when you're not, when it's not in the scene is only the scene. Notice what's added and be curious about that. And this will begin to unwind the additions. As I, as I said, it, it begins to through the, the practice of being curious instead of um, buying into beliefs, use aden- agendas, reactions, concepts, instead of buying into them but being aware, oh, this is, this is happening right now. This is what's happening right now. It begins to uh, transform us and take us in a new direction. And the Buddha says that that direction takes us to the understanding. When, for you, in the scene is only the scene. And the heard is only the heard, the cognized is only the cognized, the sensed is only the sensed. There's no you in terms of that. The, the sense of you being an addition. When there's no you in terms of that, there is no you there. It's, it's not... The sense of self is a construction that is believed, essentially. Talking about beliefs, <laughs> this is a very powerful belief that we have. One that we can start to see, and probably the belief meter is going to be pretty high on that one. It feels so rock-solid true. And yet the encouragement, you know, the encouragement can be to be curious about that. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Freedom. Freedom comes from this understanding And yet, to me, one of the the powerful things about this teaching is that you don't have to believe. In this this teaching, the understanding of of not-self, the understanding that self is a concept, the understanding that self is an an add-in, an addition, is um, a result of simple, bare attention. 
It's a res- the understanding comes as a result of being curious. Can I explore in the seen is only the seen and the heard is only the heard and the sensed is only the sensed and the cognized is only the cognized? And so to some extent, while I, I would say that it's useful to hold the notion of self lightly, well, it's useful to hold that, se- that notion as, well, you know, somebody I, I really respect, you know, the Buddha said, this is a construct. Sure doesn't feel like a construct to me, but maybe I can hold it lightly. Maybe I can hold it as a hypothesis that it's a construct. So I would encourage that, you know, to, to hold it as a, conce- a, a construct and, and be curious about how you take that construct, how you believe that construct. But in this framing of the teaching, you don't have to believe it. You don't have to believe that the sense of self is a construct in order to do this practice of being curious about what's being added to, to experience here. So I love this, that um, this points to the understanding of not-self, not as something we adopt and pick up and believe or as an idea that we try to apply to our experience and somehow say, well, there's no self, so this, I, you know, this, this isn't real somehow. You know, that's, that's a misunderstanding of how to work with that teaching. But that it is... Um, an understanding that begins to arise as we explore experience in this really simple way. Can, and, and sometimes we can pick up some, a simple teaching like this. Oh, it does seem to be useful to recognize that I'm adding, that there's this addition of, of a reaction happening here that is, wow, it's based in a belief that I don't even believe anymore. We can see, at first we can see some of the ways in which that teaching supports us and leads us towards a more easeful life, a more settled life. And, and as cer- some of the bigger forms of reactivity begin to fall away, we, seemed, we start to see some of the subtler ways that we're adding. And so it's an onward-leading kind of exploration. The end of the sutta, the end of the teaching is, it's kind of startling in a way, because it is said that after hearing this teaching, Bihiya, got it. He woke up. He understood. Probably my sense is he understood that he had been identified or attached with being the one who was the meditator. He had been realizing that I'm, you know, identifying with I'm the one who can construct this state of concentration. And this teaching, you know, kind of burst that bubble. And he recognized that this is all a conditioned process. And so he, he became awakened and he asked the Buddha to go forth under him as a teacher. He asked, he asked to become one of his disciples and uh, the Buddha said, yes, you can become a disciple but you need to get your robes. And he was wearing the bark cloth <laughs> so he needed to get his robes. And so he went off to get his robes and in the process... 
he was struck by a mad cow and killed within hours after this teaching uh, from the Buddha. This isn't maybe not what we think of as the happily ever after story. Um, and yet, you know, it, it points to, it comes back to in a way, Bahia's real like insistence. You know, I need, actually earlier, he's the third time, it says, the third time, and this points a little bit to this incident. A third time, Bahia said to the Blessed One, but it is hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for the Blessed One's life or what dangers there, there may be for mine. Teach me the Dhamma that it may be for my long-term welfare and happiness. And so this is really the recognition. You know, at another layer of the teaching here is the recognition that we don't know how long we have on this planet. We have no idea how long we will live. And we need to practice now. This, this it kind of creates a sense of urgency in a way to engage with the teaching if we take that understanding of the danger uh, or the impermanence of our life, the dangers that may be lurking in our own lives or in the lives of others. When we say goodbye to somebody, we never know if it will be the last time we see them. When we get into our car, we never know if it will be the last time. We do not know this. And yet we behave as if we had forever. And so this can, if it's taken in, not with fear or resistance, but kind of a sense of the, the actual human truth of this, it can be an inspiration for us. To me, this reflection on the impermanence of life helps me to be a better person. It helps me to more be, uh, kind of to come into more alignment with what my priorities are. If this is my last day on the planet, how do I want to spend it? How do I want to, how do I want to live my life? So this teaching around not self in a way, it's a, I like the way this is framed because it's not asking us to pick up the concept of not-self. You know, we've been exploring this, this teaching of not-self from so many different angles in the last um, few weeks. You know, different ways to kind of touch in. And this one is a really simple one. Just begin to be curious about what's your experience and what you're adding. And then see what unfolds from there. So, there's a few minutes for any comments or questions that might have come up. Anything, anything you want to say? You have something new? Oh, use the use the mic. How do we keep the awareness alive? I had once where I just really got it. <laughs> I like to just live the whole life that way, but I'm just wondering it, that once that I saw that I, I, um, it was transforming. 
it was the, an the opportunity. Seeing, the seeing of, of no self. No self. Okay, so yeah. Well, the condition. You know, I think partly too what this points to is that well, the this, the seeing of that, the understanding of that is an insight, and it's certain conditions come together for us to see that. And it's very powerfully transforming if even for a moment we see that because it, it kind of breaks down some underlying like, beliefs there that when we see the sense of self come up, there's kind of this recognition, yeah, I don't believe that so much anymore. And yet there it is still. You know, so so you know, the, the, the conditions may come together for us to kind of break through and really deeply understand that in a moment. And then habits, conditioning kind of come back. And so we just keep doing it. There's not really a way to hold on to that understanding. And yet that understanding can also provide some of the impetus to keep going. Because in that moment of seeing that, there is also often a lot of release and a lot of feeling of freedom. And we see the possibility there. And as we kind of move back to our habits and patterns... In some ways, because we've seen the freedom of that release, we feel more deeply the suffering of the ways we're holding on to a sense of self. And so, you know, the, the, the freedom from it then begins to point to the ways in which that addition is suffering. And it's our, as I said, it's kind of our system that wants to move towards well-being that will know how to do the letting go. It's not a conscious thing that we can do. And so we really have to be willing to keep just practicing in this simple way. Yep, this is a sense of self. That's what's happening right now. Oh, what's that like? And, um, and notice the sense of how can I get back to that? You know, that's an addition too. How can I, how can I hold on to that? That's an addition. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And it's 11, so we need to stop, unfortunately. So thank you for your attention.